Hello and welcome to the Panic Pass podcast follow-up show fueled by the Elfmark VDS racing team. On today's show, we're going to look back at the Moto2 and Moto3 action from the America's Grand Prix over in Coda. Steve English, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler on the show today. And uh, Neil, how's the jet lag getting on for you now? It is hitting me like a truck today, Steve. Yesterday, Wednesday was pretty cool, pretty fine. Everything was good. Uh, but today, since I've woken up, it's been like, uh, yeah, I've been hit by an SUV and then rerun over again. So a little bit sleepy, but I think we should be able to get through for this uh, podcast. Plenty to talk about from uh, Coda as always. Adam, it's really impressive that Neil had jet lag really bad on Tuesday when we were recording, really bad on Thursday when we were recording. But yesterday, when we weren't recording, he was able to do everything he wanted. What's up with that? Uh, I don't know, maybe some sort of sorcery that involves you guys as commentators. It's some some weird displaced energy. Maybe you just get it all out through the microphones over the weekends. It's the Max Pianti school of getting your excuses in early. I think that's what it is. (laughs) Well, I tell you what, I can get lots of excuses in, but I'm not going to do it at this stage right now because we've got a lot to look forward to in this show. Obviously, Looking back at Coda, the big talking point is obviously going to be that massive crash that we saw in the Moto3 race that brought out especially the second red flag. And then we had the the instances where Isan Guevara was able to be claimed as the race winner despite big confusion as to what was going to happen. That was in front of Dennis Foggia, the in-four man in the championship at the moment, and John McPhee taking his first podium of the season. So we've got a lot to look forward to on that regard for the Moto3 section of the show. Also in Moto2, we've now got only nine points the difference between Remy Gardner and Raul Fernandez after Raul was able to take advantage of Remy crashing out of the race, picked up 25 points. That was a win from Fabio Di Giantonio and Marco Bezzecchi. And then Augusto Fernandez continues his good run of form with another top four finish. But uh, we're going to kick off, obviously, enough guys, with the Moto3 story of the weekend. And Neil, that was the big crash that we saw during the, the second staging of the race. It was a huge crash an enormous crash um i mean we think that you know this year has obviously been a, a, a kind of terrible year for motorcycle racing in many respects with you know three deaths uh, of young teenage riders within what four months um but the kind of the reality of it is that we're almost lucky that it's 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 that low because we could have had a really horrific kind of tragedy again on uh, on sunday um i mean I, i'm still scratching my head just how Pedro Costa and Andrea Mino were able to walk up uh, after that accident. I watched the the crash again yesterday. Jeremy Alcobo was so lucky. There was two guys um, further back in the group that um, so nearly hit Alcobo on the straight. And those guys were traveling in, in excess of 120, 130 miles an hour. So he was a, an extremely lucky boy as well. Um, and um, you consider what happened with uh, you know Dean Berta Vinales the previous week at Jerez. Obviously, everyone was already... Um, you know, the conversation was very much centered around what do we have to change? What do we have to do to make these smaller classes safer? And this came at a time when everyone was ready, I think, to to see um, some heavy measures put in place, some heavy punishments. Um, and uh, Race Direction FIM stewards obviously felt that Dennis Andrews' move was uh, was sufficient to merit a two-race ban um, or a two-race suspension. Um, so I think that is the way to go. Um, they've tried penalties. They've tried long lap penalties. They've tried pit lane starts. They've tried different things. But I think uh, something like this, a penalty this harsh for, for Dennis Andrews is, is definitely going to be something that will take little make riders um, sit up and take notice. And, and you know, just the, some of the antics that we saw on the straight, the weaving, it's just not on. It just cannot happen. Um, 
especially with with bikes to this speed, it, it shouldn't really happen anywhere. I think in Grand Prix racing or in, in motorcycle racing, but yeah, some um, some harsh measures were taken, but I think they were entirely justified. The um, the accident itself was one of those things where it kind of tends to happen in stages. You know, you see the cause, then you see a second repercussion and a third repercussion. It's one of those things. I think I said it on the main Pass podcast this week, where you just left open mouth wondering what's going to happen next. I mean, the the size of the carnage. I mean, a couple of the MotoGP riders commented on the the sheer kind of width and, and size of the main straight at Cotter, you know, probably helped spread things out a little bit more and gave the riders just maybe a fraction of a second to, to skip maybe the worst of it. I mean, we've seen some of those crashes before, um, riders having to ramp, you know, another motorcycle and take off. And like you said, Neil, there's been a big degree of luck so far, I think, in the existence of, of Moto3, which, you know, is coming up to 10 years of existence um, when it comes to these kind of accidents. I think it said a lot about um, if you contrast the reactions of someone like Pedro Acosta who got back to the pit lane uh, and was actually quite sort of jovial, almost like he knew that he had had a narrow escape. Um, and then somebody like Andrea Migno, who was you know clearly spooked. I mean, he's eight years older than, than Acosta, far more experienced, of course, probably has seen and, and suffered and felt a lot of near misses inside the Moto3 pack. But, uh, you know, it was... Um, it was interesting watching that drama kind of play out immediately afterwards uh, where you have this moment of relief. Um, but then, you know, watching the riders and their reactions themselves was also, was also a study of how these guys come to deal with the, deal with something like that. And the second point, you know, again, which we touched on in the other show was, you know, the on-tube penalty. Do we, do we feel, uh, clearly he's been made an example of with a two-race ban, but do we feel that that's perhaps a little bit too harsh in the circumstances? Again, if we watch the TV footage on tube um, you know, he says he was kind of, he was gesticulating to his team that he was tucked in in the bubble. Uh, yeah. Okay. He was weaving. That's obvious from the, from the TV pictures, but then he's not the only guy that does it. I mean, he's not the only guy that does it. Um, I think that personally, I think that, you know, these kind of penalties maybe should have been handed out earlier in the year. I still think you look back at uh, the Barcelona race that we had, um, and, I mean, the, some of the riding there was just, it was terrible. We had Gabby Rodrigo nearly taking someone's wheel away in the front straight. We had Jeremy Alcoba backing the whole front group up so he wasn't leading onto the front straight, which then caused some kind of crazy mad 14-rider group to be packed up within, you know, tenths of a second. Crazy stuff that, that, I mean, that was another race which really could have ended in something serious happening. I think I think Alcoba should have been banned there. I think uh, Rodrigo should have been banned there. Um, I don't think that it's too harsh for Dennis Andrew. And to be honest, after seeing some of the other um, actions in that pack in Coda, um, Jama Masia was obviously quite uh, angry and revved up with Jeremy Alcoba uh, after some of his actions. And we saw him posting replays from on board of Alcoba, almost taking his front wheel away at the end of the back straight. I mean, that should be that should be punished. Alcoba should be made to set a race out as well because this isn't the first time he's uh, he's been riding dangerously a lot this year, and uh, yeah, in Catalonia and other occasions as well. I mean, it should not be tolerated anymore. Yeah, and obviously we saw the Binder instance earlier in the year, especially Saxon Ring. We've seen it where there haven't been the penalties that there should have been enforced, probably for a lot of people through the course of this season, and then Onchu is probably just in that unlucky position of being the rider that's going to be made an example out of i think overall when you look at dennis it's a bit like the top rack situation channel on choose the same as well in supersport for for us in the superbike paddock where you're looking at 
two riders that are absolute hard as nails at everything that they go for and they put the onus almost on the other rider to avoid incidents and that could well be one of those things that builds a reputation and then also leaves it where you can get penalties like this i think for for me the onto incident in isolation to give a two race ban seems very harsh but when you look at how the season has gone as a whole they had to do something eventually the fim stewards and now is the case of let's see if it changes how other riders react yeah, but Steve, where do you go from here? I mean, if you make a political example of Dennis Andrew by saying, okay, guys, Moto3 across the board, this these kind of antics have to stop, you know, here's the penalty otherwise, then you're going to be banning, you know, sections of the grid throughout the whole season. It's going to get, uh, can, can the class realistically move forward and transform the way they race? But the, looking at it another way, Adam, is can the class continue with these ridiculous near misses, like where we're having one or two serious injuries maybe even deaths a year i mean we can't keep going on like this like there's three guys that have, have died this year obviously you know one of them was only in the moto 3 world championship but you know similar kind of classes with similar styles of racing like something has to be done they have to take drastic measures because we, we can't keep going on like this with teenagers dying i mean it's just it's not on not in this day and age I mean, the age limit is is one thing. Uh, the parity of the classes with the technical regulations is another. But Moto Three has existed, like we said, for ten years now, uh, ten seasons with you know a lot of near escapes. Um, but you know, I, I just like we said, you know, with David, um, you know, on another podcast, there's no quick fix. Um, and I just wonder if, uh, for sure, Dennis Onchu and Red Bull KTM Tech Three, you're going to be thinking, right, next great next race we're allowed to go to you know, which is going to be Valencia, the last one of the season, we're going to have to check our behavior, make sure, you know, because we're going to be under scrutiny. But then, you know, is Alcoba looking at Onchu's fine and thinking, well, I better be careful and doing the same? I, I, I can't see. I don't think, you know, half of the grid are also mature enough emotionally or, you know, in terms of experience to really take those kind of sanctions on board. I don't know. Um, if, if, they're, if they're not intelligent enough to take these sanctions on board, I mean, if you think about what Dennis Onchu has gone through this week, um, it's not just the fact that he has received that suspension, so he's missing the next two races. So that's pretty serious in itself. But he's also had to listen to or read comments from pretty much every single MotoGP rider, including Rossi, Marquez, guys that he probably looks up to and thinks of as heroes, saying that, yeah, you know what, he, what he did was wrong and not right, and he should be banned. I mean, that, I think, is that's pretty... It's pretty tough for a teenager to take, let's let's be honest. And I don't, you know, I'm not saying here that Dennis Andrew did that intentionally. I don't think it was that case. It was just something that we've seen in Moto3 that a lot of riders do, and it, it just needs to be stamped out. The only way to stamp it out is to get on top of it and try and, you know, get at it immediately. Um, I think Dennis Andrew will probably have a very uh, sobering um, couple of days since Coda looking at all these comments and thinking, right, uh, something has to change. And that, that's what's needed. I mean, we, we talked about this in the main podcast. Jorge Lorenzo was obviously made an uh, example of back in 2005, his first year in the 250 class. Had to sit out a race um, just because of uh, riding too wildly. And he said that that was one of the best things that, that ever happened to him. It really forced him to look at his riding and, and to calm down and smooth himself out a little bit. Uh, can I ask you a question then as well at about this? Because... This year in the Moto3 class especially is probably the most up and down year we've ever seen for results from leading riders. Andrew is a good example of that. He had two podiums in three races. You've had Foggia pretty much every time he's 
finished a race. He's been on the podium, but he's had a lot of non-scores as well. Obviously, we've had Acosta a little bit up and down in the last five rounds. We've had Garcia, Fanati, whoever you want to look at. Is it related to the style of riding we're seeing now, where suddenly you can get yourself boxed out at the end and just leave yourself with no chance of being able to score points as well? Like, Are, are we seeing like we used to see in the 125 class. Obviously, the 125 class is very different because it was pretty clear who was going to win world championships because they were the ones getting the factory support. But we saw for a long time in the Moto3 class that the absolute top riders were at the front almost every week. Whereas now it's a lot more inconsistent. We've got more and more riders that are have really good pace one week and then you're struggling to find them the next. I mean, I could be wrong statistically, Steve, but it does seem like the, the average age of the protagonist in the class has dropped right down. I mean, you saw a rider like Albert Arenas having the kind of consistency when he wasn't being punted off or being a victim of some of the unpredictability of Moto3 last year, claimed the championship. John McPhee as well, posting good results to the position where, you know, myself and a couple of other people pre-season were tipping him to be a real championship contender this year. Um, you know, you can see how the class just swings one way in that McPhee hasn't been able to get the results or be competitive. And then you have a complete rookie like Pedro Acosta come in and absolutely smash the competition for the first half of the season. Sergio Garcia, also relatively inexperienced, you could say, in compared to some other riders like Andrea Migno, Antonelli or Fanati, who have also managed to shine in some of the more technical or the more demanding kind of circuits in the competition so I think you've seen a, a mixture of these kind of young bucks coming in and shaking things up and and maybe being a little bit more scant in their regard for for some of their peers um, you know and also some of the older riders when you know this, the situation calls for a little bit more calm or maturity coming to the fore um, I mean Foggia's scorecard is is incredible i mean i don't think i've really seen anything like it in grand prix i mean he has finished on the podium every time he's finished um you know and you you talking about the championship for for this year is actually it's creating quite an interesting scenario because you know garcia's accident and subsequent um you know kidney hematoma foggia's gain and the fact that acosta i think hasn't finished on the podium for five or six races now um since his win in styria you know it's making quite a nice tight finale to, to the campaign yeah, it definitely is. Um, and just to kind of go back to what we were talking about before, I mean, <clears throat> we had the, the big crash in Moto3 at the weekend in Austin, Steve, but also you guys had some pretty silly riding in the Supersport 300 class at one point. Wasn't this uh, like a session cancelled just because the riding was pretty ridiculous and too many riders were sitting up looking for a tow? Yeah, they were coming around the last corner in Portimao and everyone was looking for the long lap penalty or just sitting up and the FAM stewards just put out a red flag took everyone down pit lane. They weren't allowed to go to their garages. They weren't allowed to go to their mechanics. They were just sat there in pit lane being read the riot act by the FIM. And it was pretty clear what was being said to them. And from what I understand is, if this happens again, the FIM will red flag a session and keep the clock running. So you're going to lose out on your chance of qualifying. And I think it's the only way that you're going to see a change in that type of riding standards. And Moto3 does the same. We, we see it time and again. And even you were mentioning earlier on, Neil, about what we saw in Barcelona with Alcoba during a race sitting up so that he didn't give the toe down the start finish straight. That's why I think riders like Alcoba have to look at, you know, the guy next to them, which is Romano Fernati, and the fact that at Silverstone, where he completed the perfect set across every weekend by heading every session, and to a large degree at Misano, he was doing a lot of that work by himself. He was not searching out the toe in every single session. Uh, you know, if it's possible for him to do it, okay, he's 25 years old, he has the most wins and most podiums in the category, 
they're thereby the most experienced um you know th then it is possible you don't need to be tucked in behind somebody just to you know grab a couple of extra tents uh you know to, to, to be able to stand out from the pack yeah and i think that's one of the big things Ad, is that the experience of fanati helps in some instances but there's also a reason why everyone tries to do it it's because there's a massive advantage and it's such a fine line between success and failure in that class that riders will feel that they don't have a choice and if you're able to pick up half a second with a slipstream you're always going to have to do it if you're a rider like Fanati, maybe you get that one weekend a year where you can do it all on your own but it's such a rarity that it doesn't it's just it's not something that everyone's gonna be able to follow and i think there's it's gonna be interesting to see what happens going forward after the on penalty and mizan was gonna be really interesting to see how that happens because i think it's interesting to see how the riders have evolved and, and we do like you said Adam we do forget that it is a very young class and I think that's where Izan Guevara was an interesting one to to view this weekend because obviously we saw him completely lose the head and then he ended up winning the race so uh, Ad, like what was the story behind that? Yeah, coming to Izan Guevara, I mean, uh, he's had quite a bit of criticism I've seen as well on social media just for some of the histrionics of his actions. Um, it does seem a little bit over the top. I was reminded of a story actually um, in motocross. Uh, there was a prominent team owner who once observed an American uh, in the end of the 1990s, a rider called uh, Mike Brown. And he was riding for a factory Yamaha team, going for the championship. Uh, the bike failed. He pulled into the paddock, dropped the bike off at the team. And it was opposite, you know, the the team where this this prominent team manager was um, explaining the story. And basically, Brown went round to the side of the awning where they had one of the pegs in the ground, like securing it down and kicked the shit out of this thing, you know, taking his frustration out on part of the of the of the kind of the, the team structure that was round the back where nobody could see him, you know, apart from the team that was like parked opposite. And uh, this team manager said to me, he thought that was quite a classy move. You know, he didn't come into the team, didn't shout, didn't holler, didn't make a big scene. Just, you know, took out his frustration on his own in private without kind of, you know, any big fuss. And Guevara is a 17-year-old, of course, you know, his, his heart is on his sleeve, his emotions are right there. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's very clear now in MotoGP these days that everything you do once you're in the pit box or in the pit lane is caught on camera somewhere or somehow um you know i don't think the team you know the gas gas aspar team really kind of deserved that uh you know a reaction after all the sort of work and they, they've done across the weekend and support they've given him for the for the championship so far but i mean he's a hell of a rider i mean what a talent so it's uh it was unexpected of course that the rule book you know everyone was jumping in the rule book to see how that the moto 3 grand prix would be resolved but uh you know just to go from that i, I bet he felt a bit silly for a while after the elation of victory um you know calmed down yeah, and and Ad, I presume that that motocross rider, he broke his foot and he missed a few rounds, but uh, still had the adulation of, of everyone for his maturity. Well, motocross boots are pretty tough, Steve, so you can uh, get away with uh, kicking a few things. And uh, obviously enough with Guevara, Neil, we saw a big step forward from him from Silverstone onwards. And I think that's obviously why he had that frustration. He knew he had a good chance in Coda. And that's why we saw the reaction from him. That's where, at the end of the day, that is where you see a rider's maturity, their age, and their experience. But, uh, you know, this win for him, obviously, it comes in contentious circumstances. Like Adam said, everyone flipping through the rule book, trying to find out what was what. But, uh, 
he's been he's been coming on strong. He has been, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. I think since the the second Austrian race, um, he had a run of what three weekends, I think, where he set the fastest lap in each race and missed the podium on two occasions by really really narrow margins. Um, so yeah, as you say, he's been knocking on the door. Um, I was impressed by. I mean, this was his first visit to the track, so it was quite remarkable that he was the guy at the front setting the pace. Um, I did not expect that at all. I was really impressed with Xavi Artigas as well. Over the weekend, he obviously got a jump start, um, but he was fast throughout the way through free practice, got his best qualifying, and I think would have been in the podium hunt for sure had he not uh, jumped the start. So Artigas was another one that impressed. But yeah, um, Guevara has been has been strong. We know that from his uh, record in the junior championships that he is uh, he's the real deal as well. Um, he's been outshone a little bit for by Pedro Acosta this year, clearly. Um, but second half of the year, he's really come on strong, and he's now a guy that you're regularly expecting to be, you know, fighting for the top six, uh, maybe even more. So, I think uh, big future ahead for the kid. What's uh, what's our feelings on the championship then? Because you know, Garcia, like I said in the main show, Neil, it was a strange crash. It looked kind of soft, where he just sort of flopped or bailed off the side of the bike, and then the, we didn't see the camera angle where you know he said he had touched the the trackside armco. Um, we didn't really get that. That's why I think it was initially confusing to understand how he'd hurt himself. But now he's fifty points behind in the championship. There's only seventy five left to win. Um, you know, Foggia thirty points behind, and like we said, his, his run of results has been pretty incredible. We go to Mizano next, of course, where he won. Um, you know, do you think there's a? I mean, is this going to go to Valencia, or is you know Acosta going to be able to wrap it up? I think so. Ad, yeah, I think um, I think Foggia has got momentum. Um, he's the most experienced guy in the, the championship contenders, and um, is just looking like he could win. The next three races, I think, going to Misano, going to Portimao, where he's always been strong. Um, and it's going to be a real test to see just how Acosta deals with that. Um, I think Acosta has had some tough situations, tough scenarios thrown his way. Um, but um, he still managed to minimize the damage to a certain extent. Um, so I think it's uh, I think it's anyone's really between those two. Um, definitely can see it going down to Valencia. I still think the weather is going to play a factor we have, I, I think there's going to be a weekend where either qualifying or the race is in wet or iffy conditions and Foggy is just not good in the wet at all. Um, whereas Acosta has proven himself to be pretty strong in those conditions. So I think that could maybe be a factor as well. But we're, we've got a, a juicy fight in our hands and Acosta now is getting to the stage where he can't just go around in fifth or sixth. You know, he has to start pushing towards the front. His qualifying has to improve, by the way. That's, that's definitely somewhere... That he hasn't been good. I think it's been he's qualified outside the top twelve more often this year than he has qualified inside it, and um, that's a that's the sort of thing that he just cannot keep giving that sort of advantage away. Yeah, because I think that's one of the big things with Foggia as well. Neil, he's always able to qualify in those front three rows, the grid basically. And when you look at the run of form, he's had you know, five podiums in a row. Like Ad said earlier on, every time he finishes, he's on he's on the podium and he's won. Well, four or five times this year. So he's had that form all the way through and he's got the momentum. And at this stage of the year, that counts for an awful lot. And he knows what he has to do going forward. Obviously, this is very much new ground for Pedro Acosta. It's new ground for Dennis Foggia as well, don't forget. Like, it is the first time he's tried to win a world championship. But I think his team, they've got a lot of experience for it. Obviously, Akayayo has a lot of experience as well. But I think just the form that Foggia has 
all the pressure, especially if he has a good weekend in Misano, all the pressure goes on to Pedro Acosta. Yeah, that's right, Stephen. Also, I, I mean, you'd see the pendulum swinging towards Foggia and Mazzano, but then going back to Porto Mal was one race where Acosta looked so impressive earlier on in the season. So, And then once we get to the Valencia course, I think it's going to be open warfare amongst the Spaniards. You're going to see Sergio Garcia, you're going to see Guevara, Alcoba, these guys, you know, with real succinct knowledge of that particular racetrack. Um, you know, it's going to be a, a quite an interesting finale. Not quite as much as 2012, I think, where we had three riders in contention for the title going on, on to the last lap and the last corner. I mean, you don't get closer than that, but, uh, you know, it will be, it'll be good to watch. I think as well, like when we look at Portimao, that was where we got that first real indication of just how special Pedro Costa could be. Obviously, Qatar, we saw what he was able to do to be able to, to come back through the field. We're going to move on to talk about the Moto2 action from Coda now as well. And Neil, this is a really significant weekend. When we look back at it, we could see this as the pivotal weekend of the championship, really a mistake for Remy Gardner and a win for Raul Fernandez. Exactly, Steve. Yeah, a mistake for Remy Gardner, something that we just have not seen um, all year, basically. Um, I think Remy's had one crash so far this year prior to, to Sunday. And, um, you know, it came arguably at the worst possible time because Fernandez just goes from strength to strength. That was his third win in the bounce, his fourth win in the last five. He had never been to the Coda track before uh, on a Moto2 machine and has just shown himself to be incredibly fast um, wherever he goes. So, it has blown the championship wide open, just nine points now separating the two teammates. The momentum is very much with Raul. And I mean, this is really going to be a massive, massive test of Remy's resolve to see how he can respond to this. Well, let's see how Remy responded to your questions after the incident on Sunday. Let's hear from the IO rider. Uh, Bobby Aaron was just riding like an animal, just being stupid, you know. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, those silly moves were costing me time. And ciao, ciao, Marco. And uh, yeah, I lost uh, lost the gap to, to Raul, but uh, I had the pace, you know, I had the pace today and I was pushing out, I was starting to come back. But uh, yeah, just uh, between where the two asphalts connect together, there's like a little crease. I was, you know, 10 centimeters more to the right, got the crease and the thing, the thing folded. I tried to save it, nearly saved it, but it spun around on me, so. Shit happens, you know, still leaders in the championship, so, you know, and it's nothing's over yet, still race, three races to go, but uh, now we can change our attack plan a little bit, you know, yeah. just don't, uh, maybe less defending, more attack, but uh, when it's time, we will we, we will attack, but, you know, can come down to the last race, you only have to win by one point. Yeah, yeah, it seems like in the last two races, you know, everything's kind of been there, it's just circumstances mm. have almost yeah. gone against you, whereas Raul yeah, exactly. just maybe... Yeah, know. the first laps I struggle, you know, especially with the full fuel, not riding wise, but the thing just doesn't accelerate, and these fucking dickheads just pass me like animals, you know. And uh, and he's always usually out front, and usually manages to get a little gap in the beginning that I have to work my ass off to get back. So yeah, hopefully, it'd be nice to get it on pole, you know. Um, start in front of everyone, and it'd be nice to do a few laps out front and uh, keep the tires cool. So yeah, um, yeah, change up plan a little bit, and uh, and we fight to the end. Neil, obviously, you know, for Remy Gardner, this was the first big mistake we've seen from him through the course of the season. This is where momentum has potentially shifted the way of Raul Fernandez. What uh, what was your immediate reaction after you were talking to him? Um, my immediate reaction was how calm he was. Um, I've done some work for Australian Magazine for um, you know a few years now, and I remember going back to get reaction and quotes from Remy 
back when he was in Model 3 or his early days in Model 2. Um, and he was a very emotional guy uh, back then. Um, there was times you would go to his garage and you would just get a shrug of the shoulders and a bit of a um, profanity-laden um, soundbite uh, where he was obviously, you know, had nothing really more to say other than just complete frustration. But I thought it said quite a lot about Remy that this was obviously a massive moment and a, and a big disappointment because he had the speed to go with Raul and he was obviously very frustrated I think with um, with Bobier um, in those early laps for holding them up because he had the pace to go with Raul maybe even the pace to catch and, and, and get Raul uh, overhaul him but um, I thought it was telling that he showed up to the the IO box um, after the, the crash when the race finished to you know congratulate some of Raul's side of the garage when he spoke there as you just heard he was pretty measured he was obviously a bit frustrated but he was there he wasn't absolutely unleashing a, a tirade of f-bombs and the like so and he said that he's going to have to change his, his strategy um less defending more attacking i think is what he said um so i think he knows that um he has the speed and maybe he's been riding a little bit within himself just to keep that championship lead uh, maintained, but now he has no, he's no option. He has to go and attack, um, and he has to do it at Mizano. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see just how he, how he can react. Adam, obviously half the races in the Moto2 season this year, we've seen the IOKTM riders sharing the podium. And uh, now in these final three races, this is where the bit of experience could make a big difference for Remy, but also just the bit of momentum and confidence that Fernandez has. Like, he's got three race wins in a row behind them. Four out of the last five have gone his way. He's not feeling like a rookie. He's feeling like he could be a world champion. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry, Steve. Yeah, that's six times, you know, they finished this year 1-2 on the podium, which is, you know, again, something we're not really used to seeing. Maybe going back to the Mark VDS season with uh, Rabat and Calio, um, if my memory serves me well, it was that kind of a similar kind of a streak of form if you like in the class but personally Steve I really hope Remy does it I mean I think he's won four Grand Prix this year he hasn't had the kind of impact um, or generated anywhere near the same kind of hype as uh, his teammate but he's had the consistency I think he's only finished off the podium three times all season um, you know we've seen a real like Neil pointed out development in his his maturity and the way he approaches races he's ridden like a you know, with the mentality and the flexibility of a world champion all season. So I know his lead was almost 40 points at one stage. And now it's down to nine, which is, is barely nothing. And like Neil says, you know, he needs to make some sort of big statement. I think another another mistake at Mizano is going to be um, really flipping this championship around. But, um, you know, I, I really hope he does it. Neil, I did hear on the regular Paddock Pass podcast show this week, somebody refer to Remy Gardner as the people's champion. <laughs> I, I think I heard that as well. Exactly. What well, I mean, what is the people's champion? That is a, a question that I've had since that podcast. It, it's usually the person that finishes second, to be honest. That's the problem for Remy. I thought it was Muhammad Ali, wasn't he the people's champion? He was also the champ as well, though, and that's the big difference. <laughs> I think the only the only people's champion is always David Emmett in this podcast. You can tell that because he's far too popular to actually make it onto the follow-up show this week. But well, when you look Steve, at Steve, hang on a second. No, he's actually allegedly testing a motorcycle. So he's far from the people's champion to any dealership in the in the Netherlands. But um, you know, he's trying to get there. 
Well, I, I was going to just uh, make a segue to the people's champion for Coda being Cameron Bobier, but uh, if we can talk about David, we can still chat about him and his uh, and his test riding exploits or lack of them. Obviously, we've seen uh, in in our group, Cormac GP said, I wouldn't mind getting a new bike. Two days later, he'd bought a new bike. Gordon Ritchie's out there riding through half of Europe on a on a long term loan bike as well. So you know the options are there for David. It's just uh, whether or not he actually can uh, can manage to get his uh, get all of his ducks in a row to actually go and get things done. But uh, Neil, just for one guy that did get things done at the weekend was Cameron Bobier, able to come away with a top five finish, and uh, it was a really impressive ride and a really impressive weekend for Cam. And you know it's easy to look at the season as a whole and be a little bit disappointed by what Bobby has done. I'm sure he's disappointed with how it's gone. But when you look at those early season rounds, we saw lots of flashes of what he could do. And now it was great to see where he had made that step forward at the weekend. And hopefully it gives him that bit of momentum for the rest of the year because he knows Mizano, he knows Portimao, and then he'll go to Valencia and finish off the season. Exactly, Steve. Yeah. And uh, as we're about to hear, I managed to catch up with Cam just after the race. He tells us, uh, I think, one of the key things uh, to his uh, success at the weekend. Yeah, it's just overall the whole weekend was was so so good for me, good for my confidence on this thing because I've been pretty pretty beat down at times and uh, questioning like if I even you know belong here sometimes you know yeah. so. But I just in my head it just felt really good uh, knowing that I can like run with these guys on uh, on a track I'm familiar with. So uh, yeah, it was it was awesome. I, found myself in the lead like in the first corner I was like whoa and uh ran a little wide um kind of got diced up a little bit by the the fast guys up front and was able to just settle in and uh I learned a lot from those guys just like just you know just ripping off laps and laps and laps behind them um and had a couple moments ended up clicking neutral um went wide in turn one and I lost touch with uh, the front guys, and then me and Arbolino started dicing it up a little bit. Um, and then Augusto, I settled down, and Augusto came by me, and uh, I latched onto him, and um, he was he was pulling Bezeki back in a little bit, and I actually I caught like a second wind in that race. So uh, yeah, I'm just I had obviously a couple moments. I was super happy to bring it home, and uh, just huge thanks to the team for you know, getting me comfortable and just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a struggle and a fight all year, just learning, 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 learning. And it, yeah. it felt good to have just like, it's obviously not a podium or nothing, but have a good result. And uh, it just shows that our, our hard work has been paying off. And it's just been so like incredible racing in front of the American fans this weekend. And, uh, a lot of my family and friends are here. So, uh, yeah, it's, that's really cool. Yeah. Your tactics from the start were just to, to go at it and try and gain as many positions as possible because you were being, you know, making good clean moves from the first couple of laps. Yeah, I felt I felt really good uh, there at the beginning when the tire was was fresh, um, and as soon as it dropped, that's when I started struggling pretty good. And it seemed like the other guys, uh, they they were just better. They were better than me on the on when the tire dropped but uh all weekend i've been pretty good when the the tire was like new which is good for me because that hasn't been the case all year like i've been kind of stuck at like a lap time you know all year 
uh, it's some new tracks we go to, whether you, I get like a new tire or I'm on a used tire. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of positives to take from this and yeah, looking forward to trying to finish the season strong in Europe. Yeah. I just finally came, I mean, as you said, there are a lot of happiness to begin. This shows what you're capable of at a track that you know. I mean, that, that must be a huge boost. Yeah, it is. Yeah, like I said, it, it was really good for my confidence just knowing that I can run with these guys, you know, uh, at a track that I have have more experience at. So, um, yeah, that was that was really good. Uh, and yeah, I'm excited because we're going to Mizano now. Like I didn't had a pretty rough rough race there, like uh, last week, just be, or two weeks ago just because of like lack of track time on Friday because it rained and stuff like that. Lack of dry track time. So I went into the race with, we just didn't have a very, very good race position wise, but I started riding a little bit better, like the second half of the race, which was good. Uh, so that'll be cool to go back there and uh, see what I can do. And then uh, Portimao, we got a decent result there at the beginning of the year, top 10. And uh, yeah, so that'll be cool and finish it off in Valencia. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, as you heard there, Steve, I think one of the, the crucial things that Cam said is that um, over the last run of races where he hasn't been at the front, there was that sense where he wasn't quite sure that he belonged in Moto2. He had that feeling almost where he thought, you know, am I really at this level? And I guess that must be a, a natural thing for a racer of, of his pedigree to feel after a couple of races where you're you're not in the points um and obviously there's like a lot of different factors that play in experience in experience of the class in experience of the bike in experience of the tracks um but cameron showed that at a track that he has good knowledge of uh, that he was very much uh, a capable moto 2 rider um it was great to see him dicing at the front i mean he led the race for about two or three seconds at the first corner and the the roar of the the crowd uh, in Kota was was exceptional. You could really hear it from where we were sat in the media center, and um, you know he was up there dicing with the front with guys like the Gen Antonio Gardner, um, Raul, um, sorry Augusto Fernandez. Um, there was a whole load of positives to take from that uh, from that performance, I think. And you know going to Nomizano, Portimao, tracks that he's been at already this year, raced at on a Moto Two machine. You have to think with the confidence he's gained from this weekend um, that he can start there on a, a much higher footing than the last times he went there. Yeah, because obviously in Portimao as well, he had a top 10 finish at the start of the year. And that was one of those races where when you take out those first couple of laps, his pace was really impressive. So hopefully that's going to give him something to build on. Because Ad, for a rider like Bobier, he won five championships out of six in the Superbike class over in Moto America. He, he had so much confidence leaving America like the stark realities of what it's like to race in the world championship and suddenly not be the big fish must be really difficult for any rider to deal with. But I think especially for someone like Bobia that's obviously having to come over to Europe and adjust to, to so many things over here. Yeah, I think he's earned a substantial amount of credit, Steve. Um, certainly more than one year, uh, you know, in gathering experience and working out the intricacies of Moto2. 
I mean, you know, his his knowledge of of Cotta obviously bore him, you know, in good stead for that result of the weekend. But like you say, it was a confidence booster. Um, you know, he's been taking risks and trying to find limits in, in Grand Prix racing all season. And you kind of, you know, he had a place there where he had his bearings. Um, I mean, that obviously f- bore fruit in the results. But I think, you know, most of us grew up in, the in you know, the era of 500s and, and Grand Prix racing where the Americans were the dominant force. And, uh, you know, I, I think we need to see some, some quality riders again come through from the United States. I mean, it's just an extra... Um, piece of cultural diversity in the world championship. Um, so I really hope Bobier goes on. Obviously, he's going to have a you know a countryman as a teammate again in 2022. Um, and we mentioned on the on the on the main show, the American racing team setting a template as well for filtering. Like you know, we've seen some of the Asian. Uh, oh God, the name of the team has gone from the the tip of my tongue. Um, in Moto2 bringing through the, some of the Japanese or Asian riders um, and, uh, and Michael Leverty's team hopefully will do the same for the Brits Honda Team Asia I think is what you were looking for there Ant oh yeah that very complicated uh, pronunciation cheers now save my bacon yeah I think um, one thing that was quite interesting about being in Coda was m- managed to catch up with a friend of the show Matthew Miles um, and he had been in contact with Dennis Noyes a veteran American journalist as well and before Coda, I was looking at Bobier's season and thinking, you know, he hadn't done too badly. Had good performances at the, in the first third of the season, a few top tens, a few occasions where he was in the top ten and he crashed out. And the last, the latest run has basically been a consequence of him just lacking a bit of experience, really, at, at the, the tracks that we went to. But you know, speaking to the American journalists, they were like, what, "What's happening? Why is Cam not? What, what's happening with Cam? He should be in the top ten. And it was kind of clear, it was a reminder of the, the kind of regard in which Cameron is held by American journalists. I mean, he's not just a he's not just a super white rider in their eyes. He is a guy that has the talent absolutely to be cutting it here. They they feel and you know, Matthew and Dennis are guys that have intimate knowledge of, of the Grand Prix racing paddock as well as the national scene. So they know when a, a rider is truly special. So in their view, his recent performances pre-Austin were kind of almost unacceptable. It was like, you know, well, what's going on here? He, should, he shouldn't be having these kind of results. Where I was sort of just thinking, you know, it's it's a it's a new experience for him, and it's, it's obviously going to take him some time. So, um, yeah, when you when you do speak to the, the American journalist, it is clear that Cameron is is a special rider, um, and and this is kind of where he should be, even in his rookie season. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Neil, to see that expectation because that's the expectation that the rider will have as well. And we have it in in World SBK with Garrett Gerloff. When he came into this season, especially when he started the season really strong, was that is what was expected of him from some of the American journalists and the and what they felt he could do talent wise. But the difference with it is is that the talent level and the depth, whenever you're in a world championship, is so much stronger than anything that you have over in a domestic championship. That doesn't matter if you're looking at the CEV championship for bringing through Moto3 riders in the Junior World Championship, BSB for Superbike riders, Moto America, whatever you want to look at, you've got, say, four or five guys that are right there at the at the peak, at the most in, a, in any given season. Whereas you go to a world championship and you look down the list of you know where everyone is in the championship standings in, say, Moto, Moto2, for instance, you know, you've got the likes of Agora, Schroeder, 
you know, Navarro, they're all up there, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th in the championship kind of things. And it shows you that there's top tier riders all the way down the field. And you can go further down the list to, you know, Albert Arenas, given what he had done in Moto3 and how his season's gone. You know, it's very difficult to break in and get yourself to those top levels. And then it's only once you're able to get there that you have to stay there. And I think it's once you can see the pace and maybe that's what Cameron was able to do in Coda. Maybe now he's going to be able to make that next step. I mean, do we think his age counts against him a little bit? I mean, he's going to be 29 before the end of the year. Uh, you know, if you look around the class, I mean, there's there's plenty of veterans, of course, Sam Lowe's, uh, you know, Thomas Lucy, even though he's stopping. Um, but then you do have the the younger kind of generation as well, like Fernandez is right at the, the forefront of that. I don't think his age is going to count out too much against him. Like, like you said, Ad, he's going to turn 29 after the season finishes before next year. But He's never really had too many bad injuries from what I remember from his super superbike career. He didn't have too many big crashes over in Moto America. And, you know, that means that he, sh- he should have gone to Europe relatively fresh. And, you know, it's a bit like whenever we get British riders coming through. Maybe American riders are going to be the same where they get their peak a lot later than what we see from the Spanish riders. Like if you've been coming through the CEV series and European Talent Cup and all that kind of thing from 12 years of age suddenly by the time you're 18, 19, you've been a professional for a very long time, it seems. And that's when you've got that opportunity to be at your peak at a very early stage. Whereas maybe if you're coming through domestic championships, it takes you that a little bit longer to get to that peak. I mean, another factor as well, of course, if he does get better and progresses, like we saw with Joe Roberts, is there going to be a clamor and, you know, a spotlight and a degree of pressure to get him in the premier class? Uh, that's that's something else you know I mean, you'd imagine if you're a donor and you're promoters and you want to get more partners in north america then you're going to be looking to have an american as part of moto gp and not just uh, a guy who's learning his trade into his early 30s in moto 2 i mean roberts in particular you know having joined the, L- the Trans team you i mean only to score i think two points in you know the latter half of um sorry points in two races in the latter half of the season is, is a little bit of a disappointing return yeah, I think it's hard to argue with how the season's gone for Roberts over the course of this year. And obviously, given what had happened last year and the opportunities to maybe move on to an Aprilia, he ha- he is a rider that runs the risk of falling down that pecking order. Because when you look at, obviously, up until what happened in Assen with Gerloff, he had jumped forward in, in the list of potential MotoGP riders. And then that pushes someone like Roberts down that list as well. So it really is up to him to make sure that he asserts himself next year as being that top American in the Moto2 class. And like you said earlier on, Adam, we're going to have three different Americans on that Moto2 grid next year. Yeah, it was interesting that Coda, I think Josh Hayes was in the paddock and he was helping out um, Joe over the weekend. Um, Josh obviously being a a um, multi-Moto America Superbike champion, um, guy with great experience and a real, um, has a real technical mind. Um, So it was interesting to hear that and and to see Joe maybe seeking a little bit of help from someone like someone with great experience like Hayes and whether that might continue I think um I heard that Josh would be entirely open to the idea of working with uh, Roberts going forward maybe traveling to the races but I'm not sure whether that is going to be a thing but it's clear that, that Joe needs something at the moment because it's it's a pretty bad run of form he's in it was a it was a tough weekend again in, in Coda and that was a race weekend that he, I'm sure he was looking at and the team were looking at as a, a possible chance to to get back towards the front but it's it's been a slog um, for him recently, um, and considering you know at the start of the year they were thinking that that could maybe be a, a championship challenge. I mean, it's, it's not really materialized, especially in the second half of the year. 
Of course, an extra couple of weeks at home for Neil as well. And uh, Neil, a chance to be in Barcelona when it, before the weather turns too bad later on in the year. It is, Steve, yeah. A chance to... I feel like I haven't really taken a breath since uh, the season started up again in Austria in August. So it'll be nice to have uh, a few days next week where I can just close the laptop and get my bicycle uh, head out and uh, take advantage of the end of the summer here. I mean, end of the summer, we're in a pretty fortunate position, aren't we, Adam, that we're in the start yeah, of October. You had five weeks off. You had five weeks off. This is this is like a, a true summer break in, in MotoGP. I know. I'm not I'm not complaining about that. <laughs> <laughs> that five week break seems like a long time ago for her, Neil. Obviously for you, Adam, while Neil's gonna be out closing down the lap the lid of the laptop, getting a cycle in in the good weather, you're just gonna be flat out with MXGP for the next couple of weeks anyway. So there's no rest for the wicked for you. No, I'll try not to think about Neil and the Chiringuitos on the beach having a nice cool cocktail. Um I'm driving north. Uh, of Toulouse on Saturday for the French Grand Prix. First time MHGP has been back to France for two years. Followed straight away by the Spanish Grand Prix just south of Madrid that following weekend. So um, unfortunately not going to be able to get to Misano or Portimao, but um, yeah, we'll finish off the season in Valencia, which will be the the last weekend of 12 in a row. So um, it could come uh, as fast as it likes. Well, on the bright side, Ad, I don't know if it is a bright side. I'll be in Barcelona to buy you a beer in a couple of weeks' time, so you can look forward to that. Um, obviously enough for all of our listeners, they have a lot that they can look forward to as well, especially on patreon.com forward slash podcast. Over the course of the year, we've been adding an awful lot of additional content for our Patreon supporters. So for $3 a month, you can get uh, certain shows available to you on Patreon, but for $10 a month, you can become a Paddock Insider, and that includes the Paddock Notes show. So that's a, a show where at the Grand Prix weekends, Neil, David, Adam and myself will sit down and we'll chat about what we've seen and what we've heard over the course of the weekend, get you as up to date as possible. So check that out on patreon.com forward slash podcast. And uh, we'll be trying to keep churning out the shows over the course of the next couple of weeks. We've got World SBK from Argentina next week. So myself and Gordo will be on the mics for that one to get everyone up to date and how that championship continues to to uh, to unfurl we'll also have uh, lots of other shows between now and the Mizano show for MotoGP so it might be a couple of weeks off for Neil of being able to go cycle and switch off the laptop but I doubt we're going to be getting too much time off on the Paddock Pass podcast so a big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show a big thank you to the Elf Mark VDS racing team for sponsoring today's show and until the next time in the Paddock Pass podcast a big thank you from myself Steve English Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler as well this episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.